So about five weeks ago, we started this mini-series we're calling Holding On to Hope, and we've been talking about the power of hope. We've defined hope as a confident expectation of future good. A confident expectation of future good. It's different than a wish. It's something that we can, that's based in reality, something that we can expect to come true. Uh, And it's something that we've seen gives us the strength, gives us the power to endure hardship, to endure suffering. Uh, We looked at the last time I was here how even suffering itself can build uh, perseverance and character within us, that even suffering itself can be used for good. Uh, And so it's ironic that the week after that I decided to write my sermon a week in advance. Um, and I figured I was being proactive, and I was, you know, I was gonna. I had some family coming to visit, so I would, I would work a week in advance. I would write my sermon a week in advance and have it all ready for today, so I wouldn't have to worry about it last week. And and lo and behold, yesterday I go to pull up my computer and just put some finishing touches on it, and it was gone. So it's almost like the Lord was giving me a an opportunity to practice what I had been preaching and, and allow that suffering to build in me perseverance. So um, I've tried to reconstruct it between you know last night and this morning. Uh, and so if it's not, if it's not very good, then the Lord is giving you an opportunity to practice what I've been preaching as you suffer through this, and it will build endurance. Uh, hopefully, it it won't be that bad though. Just wanted to give you a heads up. That little funny example of sometimes. Uh, Life works out that way. So, so we've been talking about this idea that, uh, and, and people all around in all kinds of different disciplines are recognizing the power of hope. They're, the power of hope in economics and poverty, the power of hope in medicine and, and overcoming disease, the power of hope in psychology and overcoming um, disaster and all kinds of things. All of these different disciplines are recognizing that somebody who has a, a confident expectation that things will get better does better through hardship. It, it really does give them the power to endure. Or as the writer of Hebrews tells us, hope really is an anchor for the soul. It allows us to get through hardship and come out the other side. But what about those times when we find ourselves in situations that literally seem hopeless? We're talking about when we find ourselves at the point of death or, or ones that we love, we have lost to death. Is, is there a hope that, that goes beyond the grave? Yes. <laughs> You're anticipating the answer. That's very good. Um, I told you a few weeks ago that I'm going to spend the majority of this sermon talking about why I believe that Christianity offers a version of hope that is beyond compare. Because hope, as a general principle, is something that works for everybody, whether you're a Christian or not. The principle of hope, the principle of holding on to to future good and that giving you the strength to endure is a principle that works across the board. Whether you are a Christian or anything else or you don't believe in God at all, it's a principle that works. But I believe that Christianity offers a version of hope that is beyond compare. Because it offers a version of hope that goes beyond the grave. What if there was a kind of hope that endured even death itself? So that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to do something a little different today. I usually don't try to uh, jump all over um, the Bible. I usually try to focus on one or two passages at a time. I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm going to give you a bit of a Bible blast. We're going to jump back and forth between a few different letters. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see how vital this principle was to the early church. Uh, how often the, the writers of Scripture appeal to this principle of eternal hope 
to, to give their readers, to give first century Christians uh, a reason to hold on through the suffering that they were going through. So we're going we're gonna to jump around a lot, but we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, I'll put the text up here on the screen, and you can follow along there as well. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 13. Paul is writing to a group of Christians. This is the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's writing to a group of Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, and he, there had been some, some Christians there who had died. And they were, there was some confusion, it seems, as to what happened to Christians who had died. Because they were expecting Jesus to come back maybe soon, maybe not. Um, and so they're wondering, okay, so we have these Christians who have died. What, how, are we supposed to, how are we supposed to deal with this? And, and Paul writes to address that issue. And here's what he says. He says, brothers and sisters, right of these Christians, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Now, sleep in death is a euphemism. Uh, um, those who sleep, he, he refers to, to death as a period of sleep. It's a euphemism to, to sort of soften the harsh reality of what death was. But, but it's more than that. Because when we talk about sleep, right, we generally understand that there's going to be a period of sleep where we're not conscious. And then there's going to be a time when we what? Wake up the next morning. So when Paul uses sleep to refer to death, he, he's already telling them that, that this is just a, a temporary state. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died. They are, in essence, he says, just asleep. There will be a time that they're going to wake up. He says this, so that you do not grieve like the rest of humankind who have no what? Hope. Who have no hope. Now, Paul is writing to a group of people living in a city that is steeped in Greco-Roman culture. Steeped in Greco-Roman culture. And in the ancient world, in ancient Greco-Roman culture, there was a lot of, um, there, were, there was a great diversity of views regarding the afterlife. There were lots of different opinions on what happened when somebody died. But almost across the board, it was a negative picture. It, it, it was not positive. Death was not viewed as something good. It, they didn't believe that when you died, you would go to a better place. They believed that, that death was just sort of this, like, that the soul would sort of go on somewhere in this dark and gloomy sort of underworld. It wasn't a happy experience. So when somebody died, it, w it was not a cause. They didn't believe that their loved ones, most of the time, would go to a better place. It was just sort of this realm of the uh, Realm of the dead is what they called it, where your soul just sort of is in this gloomy existence. So the, they didn't really have hope. There wasn't hope for a, a bodily, joyful reunion with those you loved uh, in, in ancient Greco-Roman culture. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Greek poet uh, the Theocritus, uh, who lived a, about a century or two before Jesus, writes this. He says, hopes are for the living but the ones who die are without hope. This was a Greek poet talking about their view of the afterlife. Once you died, you were sort of without hope. Hope was reserved for the living. Uh, the Latin poet, Catullus, uh, living about a century before Jesus, uh, writes this. He says, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. In other words, for him, death was sleep, but it was an eternal sleep. There was no waking up. So for the ancient Greco-Roman culture, pretty much across the board, death was not viewed, um, and the afterlife was not viewed as something to hope for. 
There was no reason to hope for life after death because it was just sort of some gloomy experience. And Paul is writing to Christians living in this culture and saying, it's not that way for us. He's saying, for those of us who follow Jesus, we, we don't have to grieve in the same way because we believe something different about what happens after death. Here's what he uh, goes on to say. He says, we can have a different expectation. Here's what it is. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And they believe this because there were eyewitnesses who were walking around telling them, hey, we saw him crucified. We had breakfast with him on the beach. He came back, baby. Right? There, he's writing at a time when, when there were actually eyewitnesses walking around. And so they, they had, there was good reason for them to believe that this had really happened. He says, so Paul says, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Again, fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. Those who have died in him. Now, in him, if you read through your New Testament, you'll see over and over again, Paul uses this phrase, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, um, all of these different phrases. To be in him, to be in Christ, is to be in relationship with Christ. It's to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, one who has entered into relationship with Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is that for those who have a relationship with Jesus and have died as believers, we can have this confident expectation that when Jesus comes back, he will bring those who have died back bodily. They will be raised in a new body just like Jesus had been raised in a new body. And so he's telling them because of that, because this period of death is just a temporary state until Jesus comes back and raises them from the dead, just like he had been, because we can expect to be reunited bodily with our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep, we don't have to have the same kind of grief like those who don't trust in Christ. He's saying, yes, there is a sting to death. Yes, death is, 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 death is not a friend. We don't, we don't want death, but we don't have to grieve in the same way because we have an expectation that is different from everybody else. Nobody else really was t- teaching or believing in a literal bodily resurrection to a new paradise where there would be a reunion, a happy reunion with um, your brothers and sisters in Christ who have died. So Paul is saying, we, we don't have to grieve in that same way. Our grief is not as strong, our grief is not as bad, because we can expect, we can have a confident expectation of future good for those who have fallen asleep in him. He goes on to say, according to the Lord's word, we tell you, that's that's Paul saying, I've received this by revelation, right? This came directly from Jesus himself. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul is he's using uh, language, very similar language, to when a, a king or an emperor would arrive to a certain city or a certain region in the empire. Now, would usually be accompanied with, you know, heralds who would come and say, the king is coming, the king is coming. And there would be trumpets and all of that when the king would come to town. Paul is using the same type of language, talking about that at some point, Jesus, who is our king, right? Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah means king. When our king returns back to earth, 
There's going to be all of this fanfare. And when that happens, Paul says, those who have died in Christ, those who have died believing in Jesus, will rise first. And they will rise bodily just like Jesus. He goes on. He says, After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul is saying at some point, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back to to take his rightful spot as the true and rightful king of the world. And when he does that, we're going to go out and meet him. That doesn't mean we're going to meet him in the air and all go up to heaven. Uh, this, is, this is language talking about when, when the king would come into town, everybody would leave the town, they would go meet the king, and they would welcome him back in. They would walk him back in. This is, this is how that language was used in, in the Roman culture. And so he's saying when that happens, the dead in Christ, those who have died in Christ, will be raised bodily, just like Jesus was raised bodily. And those who are still alive when he comes will be transformed. He talks about that in other places. Go out and meet the Lord and come back. And, and then we read in other places that, that all of creation will be restored. And we'll be together in paradise with the Lord forever. And so he says because of that, because we have this confident expectation of future good, we have, because we have this hope that endures even beyond death itself, we don't have to grieve like everyone else. So encourage one another with these words. That means that that your friend or your family member, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your child, who has fallen asleep, who has died in Christ, is is, you're you're only separated from them temporarily. It's only only a temporary separation. It's just like sleep. At some point, they are going to wake up. And because of that, we don't have to have the same kind of grief like the rest of those uh, in that culture, the rest of those in the world, who, who don't believe that they're ever going to have that kind of reunion and resurrection ever again. The bottom line, Paul is saying, is that death does not have the final word. For Christians, death does not have the final word. There is a hope that extends beyond the grave. There is a a confident expectation of future good even after death. Now again, this was a pretty radical idea in Paul's day. Nobody else really believed in this kind of afterlife. Because Christianity has now been around for 2,000 years and sort of took over for a while, everybody now sort of has an idea kind of like this. But but this was not the prevailing idea in Paul's day. And it was this belief in a future resurrection, it was this belief in a future reunion with those who have died uh, and that they would all be reunited together with the Lord that led Paul to to write... the following in his letter to the Romans. So we're going to change now from the letter to the Thessalonians to the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry. Yes, Romans chapter 8. I put the wrong uh, text up there. Um, Romans chapter 8. So here's, based on all of this, based on the fact that Paul is saying that death does not have the final word, based on the fact that we believe that when Jesus comes back, he will raise those who have died with him, Because of that, Paul's able to write in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, don't don't misread Paul here. He's not saying that our present sufferings are insignificant. 
Right? He's not saying that what you that, that, that sufferings in your mortal life don't matter. He's not saying that they're, they're insignificant, you shouldn't pay attention to them. What he's saying is that as bad as things may get in this life, and things will get bad in this life for some of us, and they'll get bad in this life at some point for all of us, and he's writing to a group of Christians who are living in a time when just being a Christian was difficult, not to mention the fact that they didn't have uh, indoor plumbing, and uh, they didn't have modern medicine, and they didn't have lots of the you know, air conditioning or any of the things that we enjoy today, right? He was writing to people living in a time when life was really difficult, Especially if you were a Christian, because in in many places you were persecuted for that. He's saying as bad as things may get now, as difficult as things may be for you now, and and Paul says, listen, I know things can be difficult. This is somebody writing who, who has been stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and all kinds of things um, just for his just for following Jesus. He says, I know that life can be bad. I know things can get dark and bleak, but he says, as bad as things get. When you compare them with the glory that will be revealed in us, it doesn't even compare. In comparison to to the glory that's awaiting us, your present sufferings, as as, as bad as they may be, pale in comparison. To give you an example, when, when, when you compare the earth with your own body, the earth seems huge, right? But then when you take the earth and you set it next to the sun, all of a sudden, the earth just seems puny and insignificant. So Paul's talking about a matter of perspective here. He's saying, yes, I know that your sufferings in this moment are hard and and, and they're terrible and you're going through a difficult time. But what I want you to know, Paul says, is that the glory that will be revealed in us so far outshines and outweighs any, all of our sufferings, that our sufferings will pale in comparison. This isn't to downplay the severity of our sufferings. It's to play up the significance of the glory that will be revealed in us. And this, Paul says, gives them the strength to endure. He addresses a similar theme in a letter that he wrote to the Christians living in the city of Corinth. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what he writes to them. He's, he's writing now, uh, speaking specifically in the context of of the apostles and how difficult life was for the apostles as they traveled around the world preaching Jesus and how difficult that sometimes was. And this is what he says. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now again, he's speaking specifically in the context of the apostles and their hardships, but there's a principle here that applies to everybody, to all Christians. That no matter how bad things get, you can be hard-pressed, but you're not crushed. You can be perplexed, but you don't have to despair. You can be persecuted, but you haven't been abandoned. You can be struck down, but you won't be destroyed. Now why could Paul say this? Here's why, a couple verses later. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Again, he's rooting the hope of Christians in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which was something that they could go and verify with the eyewitnesses who had been there. He says, just as surely as you can believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you can believe that God will raise you from the dead. And because of that, 
because you have that hope waiting for you in the future, just because you're knocked down doesn't mean you're destroyed. Just because you're going through a hard time doesn't mean that that's the end. He, <coughs> excuse me, he even goes on. He says this. He says, therefore, therefore, because of all of this, because we, we believe that Jesus has been raised, and because we believe that Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste of our own resurrection, therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Right? He says that outwardly things are hard, things are difficult. Outwardly we're wasting away, yet, yet we're being renewed day by day, inwardly. And then he says this, he says, For our light and momentary afflictions... Our light and momentary troubles. And to, and to listen to Paul write, our light and momentary troubles, after all that he's been through, is kind of a joke, right? Stoned, beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, oftentimes in poverty, uh, oftentimes just that, uh, you know, fierce persecution. And Paul says, it, again, he says, our light and momentary afflictions. Like, wait a second, Paul. If that's a light and momentary affliction, what do you consider severe suffering? Right? But what he's saying, again, he says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Again, he's not downplaying suffering. He's, he's playing up the significance of future glory. He's saying the eternal glory that awaits for us when Jesus comes back and brings us back from the dead in bodily resurrection so far outweighs Whatever we may experience in this life, as bad as it is, as bad as the diagnosis is, as bad as the financial situation may be, as heart-wrenching and heartbreaking as the divorce or the death of a loved one may be, that it is, as terrible as your experience may be, the glory awaiting those who are in Christ so far outweighs them all. And because of that, we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to give up. So here's what he says. He says, so we fix our eyes. We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is, un since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so he says, in the midst of all of your suffering, in the midst of all of your suffering, fix your eyes on the eternal glory. Let that hope be an anchor for your soul. Right. We know this in, in certain different categories, that, but by fixing your eyes on something, um, my wife just gave birth to our son about four months ago, four months ago yesterday, and one of the things they teach you when you're, uh, you know, well, they teach, I didn't have to go through this, but you know, for the woman who is, who is giving birth, right, they teach her in, in, the, in the most intense moments of pain that it, it helps to have a focal point, right? So they tell you to pick a spot in the room, um, and, and fix your eyes on it. So what we did uh, is we took a, a picture of the ultrasound of our son and we put it up in front of her face so that when, when the pain got really, really difficult for her as she was going through labor, she could fix her eyes on the ultrasound and she could anticipate the future joy of holding that little boy as soon as she got through the struggle of labor. Right? By, by fixing her gaze on future joy, she was able to endure the pain for a moment. That's what Paul is saying we are to do in our deepest suffering, in our deepest need, we fix our eyes on future glory. That Jesus had promised that no matter how bad things get, there's a, there's a future glory that awaits us. 
that no matter how bad things get, that glory is going to so far outweigh it that our sufferings will seem insignificant by comparison. So fix your eyes, he says. He says, don't get caught up looking at your suffering. Don't get caught up focused on your troubles and focused on the pain. He says, fix your eyes, and that will give you strength to endure. The Apostle John was given a vision of this future. We read about it in the book of Revelation, which was a book written to encourage Christians who were going through deep troubles and intense persecution. It was written to encourage them to hold on in the face of persecution. And so so the Lord gives John a vision of what this future glory is going to look like. In Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21, this is what he writes. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is what God gave John to write to Christians who were experiencing incredible suffering and hardship. Saying, hold on. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Because what you have waiting on the other side so far outweighs your suffering that that it will not even compare. It won't even compare. And so, for Christians, this is the hope that awaits those who place their trust in Christ. There's going to be a new future where all of the things that hurt us now, everything that has been wronged will be made right. There will be a future where there's no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying, and no more pain. A glory that lasts forever. And when you compare that to our time here on earth, it just seems... Our time here on earth seems insignificant. And so what, what we see here is that this hope, this, and this is a hope that is, that is unique to Christianity, a hope that is unique to those who have placed their trust in Christ, that we can hold on to so that no matter how bad things get here, no matter how painful the disease, no matter how dire the circumstances, no matter how broken the relationship, no matter how bleak the future here on earth may seem, that we have this hope that endures the grave. And it was was just this kind of hope that made the early Christians so unique in their time. It was just this kind of hope that gave the early Christians facing persecution the strength to look down their persecutors and not waver as they were persecuted in all sorts of ways, as they were fed to wild beasts and lit on fire and all sorts of other things, they were able to stand there with resolute faces, never once giving up on their Lord because they knew that just as Jesus had been raised from the dead, so they would too. And it gave them strength in the moment to endure because they could latch themselves, they could anchor themselves to that future hope. 
It was just this kind of hope that allowed the early Christians to provide care to the sick and dying in the midst of plagues and epidemics when everybody else was leaving. We read stories of major plagues that hit cities in the Roman Empire and just killing hundreds if not thousands of people, these plagues. And what we read about is that even the doctors would often flee the city. And it was the Christians who would stay and who would administer aid to not only fellow Christians, but to everyone else who was there. Many times, these Christians themselves, because they stayed to offer aid and support, they ended up dying, contracting the disease and dying. But they did so knowing that, that they had a future glory awaiting them. It gave them strength in the moment. They no longer had to fear death. How would you live differently if you no longer had to fear death? What would you do differently if death was no longer the... the the end, if death no longer had the final answer. It allowed these Christians to give themselves wholeheartedly in service to everyone else. And again, this was at a time when taking care of people who couldn't pay you back was seen as absurd. This was actually a time, there was a time in, in our history when ch- the, the very idea of charity, doing something for someone else who could not pay you back, was viewed as absurd. Now again, because Christianity has been so interwoven into our fabric uh, and our society for nearly uh, you know, 1,500 years, the idea of charity is pretty widespread. And there are non-Christians now who believe in charity. But, but in the moment, it was seen as absurd. Why in the world, if, if, if after death all you had to expect was a, a gloomy, sort of bodiless existence in, in the netherworlds, why would you willingly submit yourself to, to care for people who are dying, knowing that it may cost you your life? But for Christians who, who knew that there was a, a glory beyond compare, they could give themselves fully over to service to others. And because they did that, they ended up saving all kinds of lives. And, and there, there are historians who really believe that this is the reason that Christianity really grew and flourished in the early centuries. It wasn't just uh, you know, doctrine and people coming to believe. It was because Christians were the ones who were actually showing love and care and compassion. And because they also believed that this life was not the end. It was just this kind of hope that gave early Christians and Christians throughout history the strength to endure intense suffering as well as to give themselves wholly in service to others. If you believe that this life is all you have, it it, it takes a lot more to give yourself over, to to lay your life down for somebody else. But if you believe that this life is, is just a temporary trust and that there's future glory waiting, it becomes so much easier to lay your life down literally or or figuratively in service to your fellow man. So here's the bottom line. Christianity offers hope beyond the grave, which is hope beyond compare. And it's a hope that is rooted in the historical and intellectually and historically defensible resurrection of Jesus. Just as surely as we can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we can believe that God will raise those who place their trust in Christ. And rightly understood, this frees us from fear of death. All of a sudden, the thing that most people fear more than anything, which is death, no longer has a hold on us. We no longer have to live in fear of death because we have a confident expectation that things will get better, even if it's on the other side of the grave. 
And this frees us to give ourselves in wholehearted service, to lay down our lives figuratively and sometimes literally in service to our fellow man. And it's just this kind of hope that I believe provides a, a, a witness that the world needs to see. So for those of you who are Christians, you don't have to fear death. For those of you who have placed your trust in Christ, you have a hope that endures beyond the grave. So no matter what you're going through now, and I know that there are some of you who are going through intense pain and intense suffering. You have experienced all kinds of hardship. You, you, can, you can rest in hope knowing that as bad as things are now, that you have a glory awaiting you in eternity that so far outweighs your suffering now. So fix your eyes on Jesus. And fix your eyes on that hope and let it give you strength and power to endure. If there are people who are in the room or who are watching online who are not yet in relationship with Jesus and you want to know a little bit more about what this is like and what this requires and what this entails and how you might have this relationship, I encourage you, please find me after the service or send me a message online or, or find a local church or a local pastor in your area and ask about how you can enter into relationship with Jesus and what it means to be his disciple so that you too can share in this hope beyond compare. This hope beyond the grave. We have this hope, the writer of Hebrews tells us, as an anchor for our soul. Because of that, we don't need to be blown around by every hardship and suffering and temptation and trial. But we can anchor ourselves to the firm promise of God that just as surely as we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we believe that God will raise those who have died in Christ. And he'll bring us together to the new Jerusalem where there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more dying and no more pain, where there will be joy as we are with the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for the promise that just as you have raised Jesus from the dead, that you will bring us with you. That when Jesus returns, we have the hope of an eternity free from death, free from sorrow, free from pain. Father, for those of us who are Christians, help us to anchor ourselves to this hope. Help us to fix our eyes on this truth. God, may this give us strength not only to endure our present suffering, but strength and courage to give our lives in service to our fellow man. Father, may this, may this hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus strengthen us and encourage us and inspire us to live our lives in service to you. To, to free, may it free us from fear of death. Father, for those who may be hearing this who do not yet have a relationship with Jesus, I pray that you would draw them close to you. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would help them to understand what it means to enter into that relationship, that you would help them to, to experience this hope beyond the grave, this hope beyond compare. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this promise that we can anchor ourselves to. God, may it give us strength to endure. In Jesus' name, amen.